we're going to conclude our series uh, in the Good Without God series here in our text. But Romans chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, and I've entitled this message, The Limits of Common Grace. The Limits of Common Grace. This is the reading of God's holy word. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That is a reading of God's holy word as we get into now prayer. And let's bow our heads in prayer as we ask the Spirit to illumine our hearts and to receive God's proclaimed word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, O Lord, for this kindness, the richness and the riches of kindness and patience and forbearance that you have laid upon us in your common grace. And I pray that as we conclude this series, that what we would aim to do and see is your grace that is special when you sent your son on the cross for us. Be with us now as we aim to complete and finish this well. And I lift you up and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 2, 4 through 5, Limits of Common Grace. Now, we've gone through the short series asking the question, what do I do? What do I do with all the good that is found in this world, whether it's by believer or by unbeliever? And it's been a legitimate question to think about because it's essentially asking, how as a Christian should I treat the world? How as a Christian should I treat the world? And we've concluded that God has given the regenerate and the unregenerate reign, mercy, kindness, and grace. God has blessed all of humankind with the gift of grace. And those of us who have been given special grace, those who have, of us who have, uh, been, have received the gospel of Jesus Christ, who proclaim that this is the only truth, the way and the life, have a perspective on life that is otherworldly. It's a perspective that we could not hold on our own. It's a perspective that can only be had because, well, let's face it, it is another gift. And therefore, since both common grace and special grace are gifts, we ought to have a proper understanding of each gift. For those who have been confused, okay, maybe you've kind of been in and out in this small, in this short series, common grace is a gift by God to all mankind, regenerate or unregenerate, okay? Transformed or non-transformed. It is a mercy, it is a kindness that God does not judge people right then and right now. For every sin that you make, you are not Uzzah who touches the ark. You are not Nadab and Abihu who brings strange fire into the tabernacle. You do not get judged right away. That is how we understand common grace. But it is also a gift in the positive 
sense because God gives good even in the untransformed, in the unbeliever. He showcases his image in people and creation whether they've been saved or not. And we as a church, we need to understand this because it's been the tendency of the church and Christians to think more highly of ourselves when compared to the world. We act as if we deserved special grace. We treat others as if they're so dirty and they'll stain us if we get anywhere near them. We don't see our sins as dark or deep as theirs. We think our sins are light in comparison to the world. And that's why we always think, I would never do something like that. Shame on them. How could they murder all those people and kids? I would never do such a thing. You see, today we're going to conclude the Good Without God series. And we're going to look at these three points. The point of common grace, the limits of common grace, and the conclusion to common grace. Join with me as we get to that first point. The point of common grace. Common grace, and I'll get straight to it, is God's mercy to the unregenerate and the regenerate. God does two things. He restrains the degree of wickedness in the unregenerate world, meaning the unregenerate is not as wicked as his heart would lead him because God restrains wicked impulses in people. He induces good thought and behavior in the unregenerate. You see, the misconception of God is that the world, and sometimes even Christians, believe that I get what I deserve. Karma, right? If God is so good and I am so good, then why don't I get what I deserve? And this is why the view of God has died to millions around us, and maybe sometimes to you. They believe that a good God would reward the good and punish the evil. That's why we get so upset with religion as a whole, because that's not what happens in this world. Evil people can get their hands on a gun and gun down innocent children at an elementary school. Where's God there? Evil people get away with extreme amounts of blessings, whereas good people always seem to get the shaft. Where's God there? We get sadistic in saying that nice and moral and stand-up individuals always finish last. And this is why we have so much trouble with God. Because our theology of Him does not align with reality. But see, the truth of the matter is that a proper understanding of common grace teaches us that God gives gifts and blessings to all of mankind. Matthew chapter 5, 45 speaks exactly on this, that he gives rain to the believer and the unbeliever. God is so merciful that he awards the evil person with good gifts. And God even goes further in his mercy in that he not only blesses them towards some good, but he also directly stirs that heart to do good despite their true nature of corruption and evil and misgivings. 
And we see this played out in otherwise wicked individuals who can be kind. We regard such people as complex. It's never really black and white, is it? Even a mass murderer can demonstrate extreme cases of love and mercy. It's complex. People are extremely complex. Situations are thoroughly complex. It's never that black and white, like I said. Broken relationships are never a one-way street. Sin is everywhere, but so is good. There are a lot of different people out there, and we see this complexity. God may grant the, the common grace blessing of being able to act kindly and appreciate kindness. He may grant uh, the unregenerate mind to preserve, perceive, perceive that it is better to give than to receive. How many of us have non-believer friends that are better at giving than to receive? He may bless the spiritually dead heart with belief in a benevolent creator. He may even give the spiritually blind uh, the mind and, or the perception of what is good and what is even holy. And you see, God doesn't have to do that. Remember William Golding's novel, Lord of the Flies. Here are these group of British boys, well-kept boys, marooned on an island from civilization. And the way the story goes and the way the book goes is that once the restraint of, of living in a civilized society is removed, William's Golding, William Golding kind of portrays that the savage nature, the, the heart of the boys comes out. And, and the book's blessing is that the beast, thought to be out there, external to the human heart, is actually within all alone. However, see, in God's common grace, he is that restraint. God restrains all that is in this world. It's not a clean pattern, okay? There are some who have greater disposition towards evil. There are others who, are greater, who have greater dispositions towards good. Even in the Lord of the Flies, uh, not every kid acts savagely. Some are better and more scared, and others are, are, are more brutal. But nonetheless, God still restrains. And so here's the point for us who have been changed by the gospel. God, our Father, is kind. God is kind to the ungrateful. God is kind to the evil. And therefore, so should we. When we put ourselves in the shoes of the world, we can begin to understand that we too we're ungrateful and evil before God put his redemptive grace upon us. Our God is good and means good for a purpose. And so the point of common grace is God's kindness to all. Secondly, the limits of common grace. You see, our complex problem has a simple answer. God gets all the credit. 
That's what the doctrine of common grace has to say. To God be all the glory. No one possesses anything that God has not given. Common grace keeps us all humble. For what we possess, we must give credit to God. And we must acknowledge that he has been such a generous giver to individuals who do not fit our categories and deser- uh, as deserving recipients. Take, for example, what our attitude ought to be toward our neighbors. We, we, we tend to size our neighbors and our friends according to their potential to become followers of Jesus. Do you do this with me? I, I tend to do this as well. We, we calculate how much love we ought to show or how long we should be friends with them according to their responsiveness to the gospel. We might be willing to go that extra mile because of the possibility that they are among the elect. And therefore, that's why I'm more friendly to them. I'm more open to them because they're closer. But common grace teaches us a simple motivation. Be merciful to the wicked and loving to our enemies so that we will be like our father. Love your enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return. This is what Luke chapter 6, verse 35 to 36 says. And your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. The simple motivation is to be merciful as your Father is merciful. What other motivation do we need to love every neighbor? Not just the ones that are eerily close to the gospel. With all that said, as helpful as doctrine, uh, as common grace might be, let the user beware. And let the, there are limits, as we are getting to in this point, uh, to what common grace is and what common grace accomplishes. Even, there are even dangers where this simple doctrine can lead us if you and I are not very careful. And this is why I want to conclude with this message. We learn that we may, uh, we may learn and, and enjoy even the works that come from the unregenerate. The music that they create, it can be beautiful. The art that they create is wonderful. It can be uh, uh, beautified. It can be enjoyed. But there's a caveat. And we need to know the warning signs. They're good and true only to the extent that they line up with God's standards and truth. Okay? Let me repeat that. They're good and true only to the extent that they line up with God's standards and truth. But they will not understand the whole picture. You see, human reason, therefore, neither approaches nor strives toward nor even takes a straight aim at this truth. To understand who the true God is or or what sort of God he wishes to be towards us, to put it in grace terms, the common grace truth that the unregenerate possess does not bring them into understanding and belief of special grace truth. In our openness to, to learning the truth that's scattered among the unregenerate, in our eagerness to enjoy the pleasures that the unregenerate may produce through these gifts of God, which we have proclaimed last week is okay to do, we may easily and obliviously follow the path of the unregenerate. We might easily move from being in the world to being of the world, 
Yes, we may learn from the world. We may enjoy the pleasures produced in the world. That's what God has created us to do, was to enjoy and be receptors of pleasure. But all the more, we have to be alert still of the deceits of the world. If we read the works of the unregenerate, it's probably wise to read more works of followers of Christ all the more. I'm not telling you to not read unregenerate work. I think it's beautiful. I think the fiction that, that they create is wonderful. I think that it can give us a great imagination and pleasures to things. But we also need to supplant it with how we understand God and how we read about God and how we not just read our scriptures, but read uh, secondary texts and books about God. We need to worship weekly in the sanctuaries of the church that know the gospel, that proclaim the gospel, the work, the worship God in truth, and whose people testify to the power of the gospel in their lives. Yes, you can hang out with unbelievers, befriend them, love them, show them kindness and mercy, but also at the same time, immerse yourself in the body. For you'll find that if you're only immersing yourself in the world, you tend to be a boat without anchor. We need to make the Bible the book that we read and study daily. You see, the more we understand God's word and abide by God's word, the more likely we will be able to discern what is true and what is profitable and what is false in the works of the world. Sometimes the best action to take for our spiritual warfare is to abstain from things and activities that have moved from legitimate pleasures to idols. Right? Didn't we say money is a legitimate pleasure, but it can easily turn into an idol? Fashion and clothing and, and beauty is a beautiful thing to behold, but it can easily turn into an idol. And sometimes we need to take wisdom to remove ourselves from things like that if we know that it's leading us towards idolatry. You see, another danger is the, the, that the blessings of common grace can lull us into misreading the spiritual condition of the unregenerate. Because an individual seems so good, oftentimes better than us, because he's religious or, or uh, because he's not religious or even God-fearing, we think he's probably accepted by God. And that is the very attitude that Romans chapter 2 and 3 addresses. After presenting the downward spiral of the ungodly in chapter 1 of Romans, the apostle turns to the outwardly religious, okay? The moral individuals that you find at the church to warn them of this presumption. Far from being set apart for those who do not honor God, they're lumped in with everyone who's a lawbreaker even. And so Paul warns that even the religious, those who look like Christians, those who can present themselves as Christian, those who can use Christianese very, very well, can easily be lumped as a lawbreaker with those who do not do good or seek God, which is sharper than any double-edged sword piercing the division of the soul and of the spirit, of the joints and of the marrow, and the discerning thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Hebrews 4.12. This is the warning 
you and I must heed for ourselves and about which we should counsel others. You see, common grace is wonderful indeed, and truly God does display great mercy, yet to receive such grace without letting it awaken one to the true God, to our true condition, comes with a price. And our text, Romans chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, makes this clear. We must not let God's present kindness and patience veil from our eyes his holiness and his righteousness, which we must see his just wrath eventually realized. You see, now is the day of salvation, but it might not be available tomorrow. Use common grace blessings to be all the more active in awakening the unregenerate to God's truth. God is patient and merciful and kind, but we ought to use this time to be arbiters towards the faith, arbiters towards the truth. Common common grace is like the insulin that is pumped into my body to keep my diabetes under control so that I appear to be healthy, but it does not heal my disease. Only God can do the necessary work to make us righteous, to bring us out of condemnation. And he does it. He put forward Christ Jesus as our propitiation by shedding his blood on the cross. And we even obtained righteousness through faith in Jesus and his work. Not only did he take the guilty and the guilt and the penalty of our sins, he transferred you and me to the status of unrighteousness, to righteousness just by his work so that we might appear before God justified. You see, it's not a righteousness of our own that we demonstrate every day, but a righteousness of Christ. And you will understand that common grace can only go so far, but it is truly the special grace of Jesus that leads us to going before our Father and saying, hey, I have a relationship with you. You can listen to me now. I might not deserve it, but your grace in in, in the cross has led me to you. Thirdly, we are sinners separated from God and under his judgment and out of his mercy. The same God provided a solution to our problem by sending his son to die on our behalf. And if we believe on the same son, Jesus Christ, we will be justified. So how then does understanding this doctrine, Christ's work on the cross, simplify what common grace tends to obscure? Well, first, it makes clear the state of the unregenerate heart. We do not need to apply some kind of spiritual thermometer to know the condition of the heart that has not received the atoning work of Jesus by faith. The heart is not merely sick. It is dead in trespasses and sins. And the simple question for us to ask ourselves whether we feel that a person ought to be accepted as good enough or religious enough is, what's the cross for? It's for our sinful and dead hearts. And if so, great a God was needed to make the sacrifice of atonement, how great must our sinful condition have been? But what Christ's work on the cross brings to clarity is God's mercy and love. 
However much anyone might assert that a merciful God would overlook sin, no one would be willing or able to take the extreme measure that God undertook to be both just and justifier. It's God, you see, who sees clearly the depravity of the human heart. And it is God who cannot tolerate such pollution in his presence. And it is the same God who pays the supreme price of offering up his own son as payment for his children? No. His friends? No. Scriptures say for his enemies. Now that's mercy and love. The mercy and love displayed in common grace is wondrous. It's something to marvel. And even then, what baffles both the the regenerate and the unregenerate alike is the seemingly random dispersion of that grace. And no matter what anyone receives, they would still like to have a little bit more. There's no variance in the measure of special grace, though in comparison to the common grace. You see, common grace, there can be variances of grace. Some might receive more good than others. But in special grace, there's no variance at all. The grace enacted on the cross and then applied to the heart to bring about redemption, well, all of that, all of those gifts are yours. We might be surprised by who receives it, but there is no receiving a little amount of it while others receive a greater amount of it. Special grace, all of it, is given to everyone who believes in the name of Jesus Christ. Everyone of the redeemed receives the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That we are rich in Christ allows us, uh, we who are rich in Christ allows us to welcome the generosity that our Heavenly Father shows to the unregenerate. Why would we question the kindness of common grace shown to the ungrateful, and that even when we, uh, we who were once ungrateful and the evil received the saving kindness of special grace. You see, special grace puts common grace into perspective. And whether the grace of God is the special grace of redemption or the common grace of providence, it is grace unmerited that springs from the kind heart of our Heavenly Father. And I will tell you this. I know that in my life, without common grace, without being allowed to mess up a few times in my life, without being allowed to take for granted the grace I've been given, I would not have been here today to give you and be a messenger of the word. You would not be here today without the gift of common grace. And so we shouldn't just go about the world and say, hey, I'm better than you. Uh, I need a 10-foot pole so that you can't be around me. No, there's, we're all blessed in grace, whether it's common grace or special. But for you who are in special grace, you do have an opportunity to be a part of leading those towards this special grace. Not an opportunity to get yourself away from people, but an opportunity to immerse yourself in their lives 
And the better you understand common grace, the better you can appreciate it, the better you can uh, understand what pleasure and the pleasures of, of the gifts that God gives you, the better you can understand how to be a salt and light to this world. You see, Jesus entered this world in common grace, or this common grace world. He looked at this world and he knew that there were such great things. Even the rich young ruler, he looked at the rich young ruler and, and, and started to feel so bad and pitiful for him because he, he, had, he was this close to understanding it all. And yet Christ understood that common grace could only go so far. That he needed to die. He needed to fix the sin problem of our lives. He needed to redeem the relational aspect that we have with God our Father. And he did, the, he did so by dying on the cross for us. He appreciated common grace as much as we should. He utilized common grace to reach out to those prostitutes, to those tax collectors, to those sinners, to show them who he really was and what the greater gift was. How you ought to live your life in this world needs to be patterned after our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray and I hope that you do that today and forevermore. Let's pray.